As Andrew said, we are indeed starting a new series uh, today that will run for the next six weeks. It's called Designing Your Life. And you're going to hear, obviously, a bit more about what we're going to be talking through uh, this month. But in advance of that, we are definitely going to read God's Word this morning. It comes to us from the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother, Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, wait, sorry. (laughs) So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman went to take the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Moses, this is the birth story of Moses. And whether you've grown up in the church or you are finding yourself sitting in a church for the very first time ever, most of us know something of Moses, right? Charlton Heston, right? This Moses, right? Okay. Or maybe a different generation, Prince of Egypt, Disney. Okay. The Ten Commandments, the mountain of fire, the the parting of the Red Sea, that old Song from youth group in the 80s, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. I don't know if any of you grew up singing that song. This is the birth narrative of Moses. And what it helps to know is that before this passage, we learn a little bit more about what Moses was experiencing and what was happening at this time. Moses is born into slavery. The people of God, the Israelites, of which Moses is one, are enslaved by the Egyptians at this time in history. And there is an edict that the nervous Pharaoh issued suggesting that every male child born to an Israelite woman should be executed, should be killed. Why? Because even through oppressive slavery, the Israelites thrived. The Hebrew community thrived. And the Pharaoh was incredibly nervous that they were going to take over. And so Moses' mom refuses to comply. And she... Hides the baby for three months, but kids grow, right? And eventually can hide him no longer. Puts him in a Moses basket, floats him down the river, and then happens to just be there, right? When he's drawn up out of the water. And he becomes the child of Pharaoh's daughter. He is raised then in the palace and as a person of the community that was oppressing his own people. 
It's a naughty story at the very least. And all of us, whether we're Moses or not, have complex backgrounds, do we not? You know, Moses is a Levite. All traces of his birth were hidden. What it means to be a Levite, this was his ethnic background. What it meant for him later when the Levitical line was uh, created was that the people that were his people were the ones that were responsible for all the priestly duties, all the religious stuff. They were the pastors and the preachers and the worship leaders of that era. And he comes from that lineage and he comes from a lineage of people who had been oppressed, but he also then comes from royalty and from education and from power. And what you may know about Moses, if you've seen any movie or read any book on him is that he didn't exactly have an easy life. You know, Moses uh, could easily, given all the things that faced him, gone the way of bad reality TV. Uh, He would have made uh, millions of dollars if you televised his life because it was a mess. And he went from this complex background, this complex cultural milieu that he came from and ended up leading an irksome and defiant people. Forty years in the wilderness, he committed murder He argued with God and we'll read later that, you know, Moses, when God said to him, I want you to be the person who goes and does my things, does my will, does my work in this world. Moses was like, yeah, no, could you find somebody else, please? And God says, no, no, you're my guy. And then Moses goes back and says, well, I'm glad you think so, but really I'm not your guy. How about my brother, Aaron? He's way more articulate than me. And God says, well, okay, we can get Aaron involved, but it's you that I want to do my work through. He had an anger issue. He got so fired up and angry and argued with God and argued with the people that at the end of his journey through the wilderness, when they got to the promised land that God had said to them, they would get the result of this 40 years of drama. Moses never stepped foot in the promised land because he had an anger issue. Moses had a complex background a complicated life came from a variety of different cultural contexts. And while he is this figure of scripture that we read about and study today, we, most of us have a complex background, do we not? And we come from different experiences that shape for good or for ill who we are. We have drama. Some of us in our deepest relationships, most of us have some sort of relationship that's out of whack Some of us, it's the person that we live with and the people that we inhabit our homes with. We have the hardest time figuring life out with. Some of us battle addictions. Some of us work jobs that do not challenge us or we're belittled or berated at work. Or maybe we just wish we had a job and we struggle with unemployment and some of the chaos that that sets forth in our lives. Some of us have spiritual goals we just seem unable to reach. Some of us are haunted by memories that seem determined to define us. We have complex backgrounds. We have cultures that have shaped us. Interestingly, though, like we said, Moses, his life could have gone either way, and right, so can all of ours. What was it about the life of Moses that later on in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, has him hailed as a pillar of faith? 
When we get to Hebrews 11, we're told it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, refused to own the privilege that he had grown up in. He chose to share in the oppression of God's people. Instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, he thought it better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. And we go on throughout this passage and read about how amazing the faith life and the legacy of Moses was. So then we ask ourselves the question, how that happened, right? What was the design of Moses life that led him to that outcome instead of any of the other outcomes that could have happened? This is the series we're going to engage in. It's called designing your life. And our hope that, uh, you know, Dan Meyer and myself and Pete and Felicia and Tara Beth and Eric Canfield, all the, the, the friends on our preaching team, we're going to have conversations about designing our lives. And I don't know about you, but, um, at this time of year in September, when everything already feels chaotic, I don't need another list of things to do from my pastor. Do you, how many of you are already out of breath and it's like mid September, right? Yeah. And how many of you are like, I hope she preaches quick because the bears game is on at noon today. Right? Yeah. So right, right. How many of you came to nine o'clock this morning? Cause you want to be home for kickoff, right? Uh, September is, is, is an, is a nightmare. And we don't want to unleash upon all of you six fancy little things that you have to go home and do. But what we want to invite you into are six conversations about how we can design our lives to have the outcome that God has for us, not the outcome that we think we want for ourselves. We're going to talk about culture today. Moses, the culture he was raised in is so significant. We're going to talk about call eventually and community communion, conflict in the common place. We're going to talk about how God uses all of these elements in each of our lives to design and fashion an outcome for us that would we just cooperate with God, we could actually achieve and accomplish. The Bible is filled with images of God as the ultimate designer. He is depicted in scripture as a gardener whose hands mold and shape and bring forth life and growth. He's depicted as a potter, a refiner of silver, a sculptor. God is likened in scripture to an engineer who can logically craft and create and manipulate to have outcomes for the good. And he is in scripture known as an artist, right? One who paints the vast canvas of life. So God as a designer is biblical and has already designed purposes and outcomes for us. If we would just cooperate and move in that direction, this is the conviction of Christians, right? On our clearest thinking moments, which we confess we'd often don't think clearly, but when we do, this is what we believe about God, that he has designed our lives in this way. Psalm 139 tells us this. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You for, are familiar with all my ways. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb, which is to say you have designed me. We just need to find God and join him in the good work that he's already doing. And one of the ways we need to begin to do this is to look at the culture that we come from. And the culture, the dominant culture that we inhabit. 
When you say the word culture to a room uh, full of church folk, Christians, people of faith, we get a range of responses. One is culture is bad and church community, God, God is good. And, and we are battling against culture that out there in culture is where the evil lies. And our job as people of faith is to fight against it, to rally our political causes against it, our social causes against it, whatever it is. But we are fighting with culture. There's a tension between faith communities and culture. The other end of the spectrum is, well, you know, it is what it is, right? I mean, we, we all swim in the same soup. We all kind of just go with the flow. And yeah, sure, there are things about the dominant culture that aren't great. But, eh, you know, who am I to rock the boat? Um, this is where I live. This is what I do. And, and maybe we hesitate to call out some things that aren't quite right with the cultures that we inhabit. The reality is the design that God has for us is somewhere in the middle. And that culture itself is a huge, tremendous gift that God has given to us. And it is not a thing that is out there that is to be um, argued against. Culture is, is the very essence of who we are. It is the culture, the gift of culture is the reason we can talk to anybody. The reason we can sing the words to these songs together because language is the gift God gave us. And most of us inhabit multiple cultures. You have a work culture. You have a culture inside of your own home. If you're an educator or a student, different classrooms have different cultures, right? And there's certain classrooms you walk into and there's expectations, there's norms. There's the way communities interact with each other. Uh, you know, my community has a culture in our individual neighborhood, our street has a culture. The kids on our street right now are um, obsessed with Nerf guns and Nerf wars. And they all went and bought plastic night costumes and they ride electric scooters, like not like wheelchair scooters, but like scooters. Right. And so this is very normal. And they have capes. And so this is very normal. The culture of our neighborhood is that on any given afternoon, you will see a kid with full night gear and a Nerf gun and a cape on a scooter flying down the street. And this is very normal. This is one of our norms. When my mother came to visit, she goes, what is happening? <laughs> right? I mean, we, there's, there's norms. You know, the minute you were born, you were born into an ethnic background that had its own rights and expectations and conversations around your birth. Whether you were born male or female, for good or for ill, there were certain expectations that were already placed upon you. The fact that you were born on U.S. soil and not another place in this world made a difference. Sometimes good and sometimes not so good. But we need to understand where we came from. Moses knew where he came from and he knew how to extract the good from those situations. There's a great social reformer and famous landscape architect. His name is Frederick Law Olmsted. And Olmsted designed a ton of brilliant parks and recreation spaces in the late 18, early 1900s. He designed the college campuses of Yale, of the University of Chicago, of Wellesley College. He designed the Capitol grounds in New York City, or in, in Washington, D.C., and most notably, he designed Central Park in New York City. And what Olmsted said that before he messed with anything when he showed up to bring even more culture and more conversation to a place was that he first paused 
One of his design principles was to pause and respect the genius of a place. Respect the genius of a place. Before we judge or pass commentary, respect the genius. And this is what Moses did. In both of the situations that he came from as far as the dominant culture and the oppressed culture. And he later backed away from the dominant culture that was oppressing his people. But you know what he did? He respected the genius of it as well. And he took from it what was good. He knew how it defined him. He could not have led those people the way he did were he not in the palace of power to learn leadership lessons and skills. He learned from the culture that he inherited. And then he recognized what was bad about it and he moved on and he moved away from it. Do you see how we can do this? Perhaps in our own lives, we have to recognize where we come from and what is good about it that is holy and God honoring and needs to be celebrated and continued and what needs to be completely outright rejected. But if we can't identify and recognize those things, we won't be able to shift and change things to the way of God in the way that we're expected to do. You know, the family uh, of origin that I come from, uh, my mother uh, is a very high energy person. And the culture in the home that I grew up in was there is no rest for the weary. And, and, and my mom's a, a wonderful person. I love her very much. But you did not take naps in our house when I was growing up. As a teenager, you did not get to sleep in on a Saturday the way a lot of other adolescents might. It was 8 a.m. You are up and at it. And my mom still to this day, she can't sit still. You know, we go on vacation and my dad has like a 17-page itinerary of everything we're going to do. And I'm like, Dad, I just want to sit on the beach for like 10 minutes. You know, it's no big deal. The, the slogan in our family is, got to get up, got to go. That's, that's just what they say. My dad still says this. Okay, there's some good there. Get a lot done in a family structure like that. Right? There's also a lot of negative there. Like, how exhausting is that, right? You know, and there's the biblical principle of rest that just didn't really occur <laughs> to, um, to my parents. And so you see how you have to recognize the genius of those things. But you also have to recognize, you know, what's challenging. And you have to recognize in our dominant culture, we see the world in a way that is very different than they see the world, you know, and they see God in different continents and different countries. You know, if we're not careful, it's easy to assume God would be an American, right? You know, and if you look at early Western art, you know, Jesus is sort of this tall, blue-eyed, almost blonde-haired figure, right? In some of European and, and Western art depictions of Jesus. Right? He, was a, he was a short Jewish guy, right? But we're, we're likely to see the world the way our own culture tells us to. And we're likely to inherit and take the negative and just make it an assumption about the whole. My daughter is seven years old, and my mother gifted us with a trip to the American Girl doll store once. Do any of you have little girls that have been? Yeah, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, right? And you walk up. This is the, the flagship store on Michigan Avenue. It's this two-story thing. And you walk in, and you go up this escalator, and it is like consumerism on steroids. And we came up the escalator, and her eyes got wide as saucers. And she, like, clutched my hand. She goes, Mommy! And I was like, this is going to be very bad. <laughs> You know, and she had this doll. It's like a $100 doll, right? And uh, the doll has a swimsuit and fins and flippers and a mask and a snort. I mean, you could just buy all this stuff for these dolls. And then we walked around the corner, and you can eat with your doll. 
are not bad things necessarily. And then they have a doll hospital that if your doll breaks an arm or leg, you can get that fixed. And um, my mom had to stop me because my, we, we, we walked over to the doll hospital and I actually said to the lady, I go, do you know that there's people in the developing world that don't have a real hospital? I said, I said that and my mom's like, honey, honey, sometimes it's just too much. Uh, <laughs> right. But I mean, like if we're not careful, right. I mean, you see, we, we live in a dominant culture that has a hospital for dolls. Okay. And, and you know what? And that can be okay on occasion. Actually, I don't know if that's okay, but uh, you know, Right. I mean, do you see the culture? If we are not self-aware, we will not design our lives. We will not allow God to design our lives in a way that makes a difference and contributes to the common good. So the, the first lesson we need to take from Moses is he knew his culture. Do you know your culture? Do you know where you came from? And do you know what is good about it and what is bad about it? And it might be as simple as going home and just making a list. What assumptions do you make about the way life works because of the way you were raised? And are those God's assumptions about the way life is supposed to work? And they might be. It is not all bad. But you have to ask yourself that question. The second and last thing that I want to talk about with Moses is he knew what confronted him. He knew what confronted him. He knew who he was. He knew where he came from. He knew how to take the good and the bad of his cultural upbringing And he knew what confronted him. He knew what was bad about the other aspects of culture that he inhabited and what was good about them. This is why he argues with God. He knew what he was up against. He was about to lead an entire nation of people on a 40 year pilgrimage through the desert. He did not want to do this. (laughs) He knew he had challenges. He knew what he faced and how he had to equip himself and design his life over or around those things. Now, what do we face? What confronts us? Rampant consumerism definitely confronts us, right? Do you know what you're facing? You know, individualism over community, the inability to turn it off or unplug You know, we came to a very unique point in history. We were born in this life at a time in history where technology, I mean, think about what someone a hundred years ago would do with a cell phone. They would probably stare at it and pass out, right? What is this thing? (laughs) Right? There's good there and there's bad. What confronts you? What culture do you come from? And what confronts you? What are you being called to do or change as a result? Because simply saying, well, this is where I come from and that's good and that's hard. That's not enough. What are you being called to do or change? What action are you being invited to take because of the culture that you understand? There's a a, a gentleman named uh, David Brooks. Uh, he's a, a brilliant columnist for the New York Times. He's sort of cheeky and uh, very opinionated. He writes op-ed pieces for the New York Times. He's also a great author. And he wrote a New York Times bestseller called The Road to Character. And while uh, we could talk in our culture about so many different things, Brooks takes us on a basically throwback journey to look at some of the most brilliant minds that have shaped so many pieces of culture in our history. And he talks about how they were shaped 
and how they designed their lives. And interestingly, he's not noted as a man of deep faith necessarily, but he talks about how most of the figures in his conversations in his book had a deep Christian faith. And he talks about what the design was for their lives. And he says this, he says that um, most of us today ask personal questions when it comes to vocation and call and what we're supposed to do. We ask, what do I like? What are my gifts? What do I want from life? And he says this, the people of extraordinary character, however, started their lives by asking the cultural questions instead. What does life want from me? What are my circumstances calling me to do? This perspective, writes Brooks, begins with an awareness that the world existed long before you and will last long after you. And in the brief span of your life, you have been thrown into, into a specific place with specific problems and needs, and your job is to figure certain things out. What does this environment need in order to be made whole? What is it that needs repair? What tasks are lying around waiting to be performed? In this scheme of things, writes Brooks, we don't create our lives. We are summoned by life. We are summoned by God to respond to the crises and the chaos that we see around us. So what is your culture and what confronts you? Ultimately, right, this is what Jesus did, is it not? He was divine, yes, but he was fully human. And he was born into a very specific era in human history. God designed the nanosecond at which Jesus came to this world. And it was no mistake that he came through a poor teenage girl. And Jesus understood the Greco-Roman world that he was in. He also understood the Jewish culture that he came from. He understood the culture of the academic elite who argued with him and he could spar with them. And he knew they confronted him. And he knew more than any other figure in human history what ultimately confronted him. Death on a cross so that we might have life. And he didn't necessarily love that that was the way it was going to end. There's a passage at the end of his life where he actually prays to God. You know what, God, if possible, take this cup from me. Take this thing you've designed for me to do. And, and, and I don't want to do it. Right. And how many of you have something in your life that God is nudging you to do for the good and for his glory that you are like, I don't want to do that. Moses didn't want to do it. Jesus didn't want to do it. A lot of us don't want to do the things God is inviting us to do, but what is the design of your life and what are you being funneled toward for God's goodness and God's glory? I'm going to pray for us here in a second. And uh, at the end of that prayer, the uh, band is going to lead a song. They can come on up now if they want Um, a a hymn that many of us might know. It's called Be Thou My Vision. And uh, in the 8th century, uh, there was an Irish monk. It's a Celtic song. And he authored the song in the 8th century. And he wrote the hymn based on a story that he had received that had been passed down through culture and through the centuries. It's the story of St. Patrick. And there was a moment in history where an Irish king issued an edict, right? We've got a lot of kings in history issuing edicts, right? And that there was to be no lighting of candles, no lighting of fires, no celebrations of any kind until a certain pagan festival had come and gone. And the edict had been passed down at Eastertide, at Easter time. 
and St. Patrick, their culture at the time, would light candles on Easter Eve to celebrate the resurrection and the coming of Christ. And the lighting of candles was so important to them. It was part of their faith tradition. And St. Patrick absolutely flat out refused. And he gathered his people and they lit their candles and they celebrated Easter Eve. And the story goes that the king was so moved by Patrick's faith that he removed the edict and paved the way for St. Patrick to do even greater missionary work than he was even doing at that time. Because he trusted in the design of life. And so as we sing this, let's reflect on that. Let's reflect on whatever the design God has called you to for your life. Would you pray with me quickly and then we'll sing. Lord, thank you that you have designed life. That we are here at this time in history having these conversations because you have ordained them. That you have set a path for each one of us. And it's not about designing our own ideas and plans. It's about finding the path that you have set for us. So give us time. Give us space this week. Help us reflect well on our culture, on the conversations that swirl around us, and what it is you need us to do so that we can follow you and follow your great design for our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. And all of God's people said, amen.